Hey everybody, my name is Justin Murphy and this is my podcast. It's called Other Life because it's where I talk about all the things I don't get to talk about in normal life. So if you're into it, you should definitely subscribe. And if you'd like to talk to other people interested in what I'm interested in or ask me questions or request future topics or guests, please just follow the link in the show notes. Finally, I just want to give a huge thanks to all the donors and patrons. I could not keep this podcast running without financial backers, so I'm very grateful. And I would just say that if you enjoy this podcast or my blog or my videos, please do consider signing up to give a little bit of money each month. It would really help me grow out this project, and it would mean a lot to me. So thanks a lot. Now on to the podcast. Over and out. All right. So I believe that we are now live streaming. We are now live. Sonia, thank you so much for joining me. Before we start, I should probably uh, give the audience a little bit of an introduction. Well, first of all, I should say to everyone, welcome to the Other Life Podcast. Thanks for coming out, as always. Uh, This is actually the second podcast I'm doing in a very special series that's going to have a little bit more of a practical bent, which is somewhat out of character for me. Most of my podcasts for the past year have just been kind of rambling, crazy conversations about insane ideas. (laughs) And uh, now I'm going to try to do a series where we actually learn about how people are building interesting and successful creative digital hustles. And so I'm trying to learn in more detail, more concretely, how other intellectuals and other creators are taking a serious stab at making a real living on the internet. And um, I already talked with Ayla, uh, who gave us a very fascinating talk about the contemporary adult industry. And uh, in future talks, I'll be, I'll be talking with people like Anna Kachian from Red Scare. And I've also scheduled Eggy, the incel uh, celebrity rapper and live streamer. So it's going to be all over the place. I'm going to be talking with a bunch of people who are uh, making a living on the internet, doing creative, interesting, and, and, and kind of intellectually oriented projects that, that are quite outside of the box of what most people think of as, as internet uh, businesses. And so that's the that's the goal for this series. And number two in this lineup is Sonia Mann, who is here with me today. And I've known Sonia for a little bit. Some of you might remember uh, she was on the podcast uh, sometime about a year ago, I think. And uh, maybe more. Recently, might have been more than a year. Might have been even more than a year. That's right. And uh, Sonia is talking with us at a very interesting time because she just quit her job literally a couple weeks ago. And uh, she's been working in the crypto space for some time, but she's also been an active writer and and person on the internet for quite some time also. And so she decided to recently take the plunge and quit her job and try to make it work on the internet. So we are catching her at a very interesting moment in her in her trajectory. So uh, we're going to try to pick Sonia's brain for any interesting insights, strategies, tactics that she has learned along the way. And especially we want to learn a little, little bit more about what she's doing now and how she plans how she plans to make it work. It, it's extremely exciting time to be talking to her. So uh, first of all, welcome, Sonia, and thanks for coming on today. Thank you, Justin, and thank you for the lovely introduction. Um, and hello to everybody watching this, whoever you may be. Um, yeah, I, I, so what I think of instantly based on you know the themes that you brought up is how it's, I kind of feel like next level Patreon is evolving. And I use Patreon as more of a touch point than like specifically that service or specifically that company. Actually, I think that company is probably doomed because they don't make enough money. Um, but the idea, the basic idea of like, I'm going to publish it and you're going to pay me for it. That's a pretty good idea. It works. <laughs> um, so uh-huh. yeah, uh, I think, um, I think that that's kind of, that's really what the core of it is, is that you just, you make something that's compelling enough that people want to pay for it. 
And there are lots and lots of different ways to do that. And I think um, this, this scene that you and I are part of is very interested in, like, what if it's not just a paid newsletter, you know, like paid newsletters are dime a dozen at this point. Um, and I, certainly when I was thinking about what I wanted to do when I went independent, I was like, okay, well, I could just like, I could write an article three times a week or whatever. And I know that people would pay for that. Like that is kind of actually what people want me to do. Um, people aren't as interested, I would say, in the zine stuff as I am. Um, but in a way, this has kind of worked out in my favor because uh, I, because the things that I do are pretty niche, the people who sign up to support me are like the most invested people. It's definitely, um, I'm not... I, I do, I want to have broader appeal and I'm sort of developing towards it uh, or it's sort of, you know, like product market fit in a broader sense um, mm -hmm. as opposed to sort of like, you know, this this weird little clump of nerds who already knows me really well. Like I want to be more appealing to people who don't know me already um, and something right. I'm working on. But um, so, so sorry, the, I guess I have a lot of enthusiasm, but less coherence. So you'll have to keep asking me questions to guide me back onto some kind of point yeah, yeah, no, that's that's awesome. That's great to just kind of throw all that onto the table. We can we can definitely unpack all of it. I think the best way to start though would just be to can you just give people a kind of really concrete, uh, kind of light line item breakdown of just what is your current kind of production system? Like, what do you produce on what type of schedule? And just so we have a kind of starting point. That's a, that's a great idea. My so my current commitments are that I send a newsletter once a week. Um, the second one is this week. So like, like Justin said, this is all incredibly new. Um, I had sort of jankier and less active forms of the newsletter, but now it's a like consistent ongoing thing. Um, so I send a newsletter every week, which is like, here's what I published this week. Here's what I've been up to. Here's what I've been reading about. Maybe some interesting links. I'm not sure about that part because I feel like interesting links are kind of a dime a dozen. People should sign up for signs of life. That's a great, interesting links huh. newsletter. Thanks. Sonia. Um, it outperforms the other interesting links newsletters. I'll wow. say that. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So one so newsletter is a commitment. And then I have a monthly zine. So the monthly zine is both a like physically printed little booklet pamphlet kind of thing. Um, and then there's also a digital version, like, you know, high res scans kind of stuff. Um, I would, I send a physical zine to subscribers based in the U S people, international shipping is like a whole, ball of wax that I'm not really prepared to tackle yet, especially with the whole pandemic thing going on. It was already a scary logistical thing to do. And now it's an even scarier logistical thing to do. So I still, it bothers me that the international experience does not have feature parity. And I'm going to figure out some way to mitigate that, but I haven't figured out what it is yet. Okay. Um, and I would so say that like, Aside from, just let, let me say one more thing. Please. Um, oh, yeah. Aside yeah. from these like concrete things, a big part of what I'm offering people is, you know, if I'm working on my own, I can be nimble and experimental and I can just do shit. Like uh, last week, I did a show and tell call. Um, and that's something I did as a one off. Like I didn't commit to doing it on an ongoing basis. I might do another one, but I haven't decided. Right. <laughs> um, and so, it was like a, a fair number of people came. It was like 15 people or something. And that's the kind of thing that like, if I had a normal job, I can't decide like, hey, I think I might just do a show and tell call on Friday afternoon. But I can do that kind of thing with people supporting me directly. Right. Okay. So your your hard obligations are 
a newsletter every week and a zine every month. Is that right? Or yes, anything else? That's it. And every, that's it. so, I'll, uh, so I'll, okay. I will, I would say that I have abstractly committed to delivering more than that, but I have not committed to what it is exactly. That's, so this that, is intentionally yeah. leaving me freedom to experiment and just do, just do things. Yeah, I think that's actually a, a little lesson here already, which I've noticed in my own experimentation. I think to keep your your hard public obligations uh, minimal so that you are mm-hmm. certainly without a doubt going to always deliver, I think is really crucial. Uh, you can often sort of promise too many people too many things. And then before you know it, you're just spending all of your time in this kind of like really oppressive grind that actually makes you mm-hmm. um, like half half of who you really are. It actually makes you like a less less interesting, less valuable kind of person or presence in in people's lives. And so, in a weird way, by keeping your your hard public obligations relatively modest, you increase the probability you're absolutely going to deliver and probably going to over deliver. And also, you have the time and energy to be your best self and be creative and try new things that people are ultimately going to like even more. Oh yeah. And I think like reward people gambling on you, right? That's what the, the under promise over deliver thing is. It's like someone makes a bet on you. They're like, all right, this is kind of like, you're charging 1350 a month for a zine and a newsletter. And that's kind of it. Like, okay. But if they're, if they are, if they decide like, oh, that's actually really worth 1350, I'm going to do it, you know? And then I show up with even more than what I've offered. I, right. it's like, they've, they've taken a leap of faith to trust me. And I like, I really appreciate that. So I want to show up and validate it. And, um, right on. And yeah, it, it really is like a two way, it's a two way relationship. And yeah, I, would I see a lot of relationships people and like parasociality mm-hmm. is a big part of, um, how this all works. I'm sure that came up in your conversation with Ayala. Sure. In a way, if, if only implicitly, I see, you know, I see a lot of people who will start a Patreon or something like that. And they think they need to promise patrons all these different things on this like complicated schedule to, to really deliver value. And I, I really think it's like, it's a common mistake that, that you see a lot. And you quickly find that two things, one, that it's actually way more work than you realize in trying to deliver many things on a kind of obligatory schedule uh, actually gets really, really tricky uh, quickly. And also, um, what you learn is that actually the people who really support you and really love your work and really want you to succeed, they don't really need like a lot of promised things on some sort of set schedule. They don't even necessarily want that. And so often if you try to deliver this like really impressive offering of, of, of deliverables, as, as they call them in the business world, you, you actually, uh, the, you're not making people that happy necessarily, but you're making your life really difficult. <laughs> I, I, uh, as a, I've subscribed to so many, like over the years, so many different variations on this. And I've definitely on the like patron side of things, I've definitely seen what you're saying, which is, uh, you know, I'll subscribe to someone because I like their art and they'll be like, I'm going to send you eight different pictures with these like hyper specific, like this one is going to have this theme and this one's going to have this theme. And it's going to be on like, you know, this one is every Wednesday, et cetera. And one, like you said, people always, always welch on it because it's too much and it's too specific. Exactly. Like you said. Um, and uh, like, especially if you're doing anything artistic, like creative motivation on demand is a really tough thing. Like you can compensate for it with discipline to some extent, but I would say most of us are not at, in that, like, I'm a famous novelist who sits out and writes like two hours of prose every day. Most people are not in that level of disciplined production. Um, and so if you're requiring, like, I need to do XYZ theme at this time every month, 
that's you're just really asking something that's going to deaden your creative spirit. You're giving yourself this like you're taking away your freedom to like move around and be nimble and be fluid, which is part of what gives you an advantage as an individual creator. Like you should not be trying to ape institutions. Institutions are a whole different kind of entity. Um, and I mean, building an institution is one thing. And I know you're somewhat going in that direction and some of my other friends are also. But if you're not doing that, like don't, don't do it <laughs> because it's too much work. <laughs> right, right. So brilliant, brilliant. Now you told us a little bit about your, your production system at the moment, what you're putting out and what kind of schedule. Could you also tell us a little bit about what are the income streams? And if, if you wouldn't mind, give us a little bit of an insight into what are your current revenue numbers? Yeah. Okay. So let me pull up Stripe, but I'll give you the, like the high gloss, which is that I have, I want to say it's around 30 subscribers right now. That's not a precise number because I would have to fact check it, but it's like give or take two or three people. Um, And subscribers to what exactly to the zine or to what? To, so it's just like a membership in my website. (laughs) Um, It, the subscribe it's, it's, it's an all access pass to my output. That's the like concept of it is, Anything gotcha. I make, you get. But um, the the, the so, one thing that you kind of are guaranteed to get is the zine. Is that right? Yeah. So you're guaranteed the zine and you're guaranteed the ongoing newsletter. And you are amorphously guaranteed that I'm going to make more than that. Yeah. Um, but just not what it is. Like I said earlier. So let's see. My All right. Over the last three months, um, my gross volume was $1,000.76.50. So not like not bringing in that much money yet, um, but sure. that's okay. Like, cause I have runway. I intentionally, um, I have like roughly six months of savings to ramp things up, uh, which right is, I definitely would not have quit my job without having that. Um, so you said, I, you I, said 1000 over about three months. So you have an MRR of about yeah, like 300, although, 300 something. No, uh, let me tell you what the MMR is. It's like 450 or so. Because uh, the three months is, it's very like loaded in the past couple of weeks after I announced. Like there gotcha. were a few people who signed up before them, but it's mostly been a recent chunk. Gotcha. Um, so the MMR right now, this is an estimate because it, you know, you never know who's going to like sign up or who's going to drop off. Um, but it's estimated at about $500 a month. Right on. Um, okay, cool. Yeah, cool. So I need to, what I need to earn like where I'm trying to get to within six months is $6,000 a month in revenue. Um, so let's see what's 6,000 divided by 500. I should be able to do that in my head, but I'm not good at math. Um, 12. Yeah. So I need to 12 X my MMR over the next. You're going to try to get this. What did you say, say it against how much in six months? 6,000. Yeah. 6, I mean, a month. Like, it may not, it may not happen, but no, ambitious goals <laughs> are awesome. Uh, yeah. That's great. Yeah. So your, your, your goal is to get to 6,000 a month within six months. Yeah. So, and then that gives me like my like personal expenses about $3,000 a month. So, but there's also like the, the, the business needs funding because I want to like, I want to commission work from other people. Um, Publishing costs money. Like you just have to like physically order things to be printed, like various subscriptions. So like say ghost hosting is fairly spendy because of the membership feature, that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. I mean, I applaud you for setting ambitious goals. Why not? Right. And also for being public about it and not, not being scared to just say, here's my crazy goal. And, uh, I'm just going to put it out there. So good for you. And I'm obviously rooting for you and uh, not that afraid of failure. (laughs) 
No, you shouldn't be. I think, and I think it's really good for you to be showing that to people. Uh, one interesting question we, maybe we should tackle at the outset is the idea of quitting your job to a lot of people sounds really crazy. And one big question in kind of this world of both kind of the creator economy, but also in startup land where people are launching side projects and trying to go full-time on their kind of side project startup idea or whatever. Uh, a big, huge question people are always talking about is when should you quit your job or when is it good or reasonable to quit your job? And I think, and when I was an academic thinking about quitting my job, I actually read a lot on this topic. I read a lot of articles. I read some books. Um, there's one a widely recommended book called When to Jump. And uh, and I read that and I read a bunch of stuff. And I would say the consensus opinion, what most people say is don't quit your job until you have uh, a fair amount of already established success and income already coming in. That, I would say that's kind of the, 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 the median opinion uh, in kind of respectable, educated circles. Now, interestingly, Sonia, what you and I have in common is that we both took the plunge way before it was probably like very financially responsible to do that. In fact, interestingly, you might be interested to know when I quit my job, I only had about 500 bucks coming in a month on Patreon. Uh, nice. So, so it, when I, when I decided to leave academia, your, it was your not, wife works, right? what's that? Your wife works, right? Um, at the time she wasn't really, she, I, I mean, she, oh, dude, that is so baller. I mean, that, that's a bit of an asshole thing to say because she's always worked something in some way. But I mean, uh, at the time she wasn't working like a professional career uh -huh. income type of game. So yeah, that's, that's all I meant I by meant. that. Like, I, I'm yeah. not trying to denigrate her labor, just like in terms of how much like cash flow. Yeah, exactly. So she was she was working. She's always worked in some way, but she wasn't bringing in much money. No. And uh, I was I was by far the, the breadwinner of the household. Luckily, we don't have kids yet. So um, so that kind of was a major variable in why I was willing to uh take on more risk in any I, uh, event. I am also the breadwinner and my fiance was like, <sighs> yeah, well, but, I mean, for what it's worth, like, uh, so, so what I want to basically tell listeners or watchers at the moment is that, um, Sonia and I are probably on the far end of risk tolerance and, uh, but there are different debates in, in this world. Like some people say you should really have a very kind of promising, stable financial trajectory for your side project or your creator project or whatever um, before you quit your job. But in my perspective, and this is the question I want to ask you, Sonia, I want to ask you how you see it and, and how you thought about that risk and that decision. Uh, for me, it was kind of like um, w once I had just enough kind of uh, uh, of a test, really, like to me, like 500 bucks a month is obviously nowhere near enough to live on or let alone build a family on. But it was, for me, it was more like once I got to like about 500 bucks a month, it was enough proof to me that there's something here, right? Like there, there's, there's clearly something real and it wasn't like certain that I'd be able to pull it off, but it was clear that if I hustled hard enough and was creative enough and willing to be flexible and keep an open mind for long enough, I had just enough assurance that there was something real here. And I, I just knew deep down inside that I could make it work somehow. And so for me, I decided that was enough. I wouldn't necessarily recommend people quit their jobs with only 500 bucks coming in per month with their side project. But I would also say, you know, if you're the type of person like me, maybe the type of person like you, I mean, I don't regret it at all. And, and I'm making it work. I'm doing quite well. I'm quite happy with how I am one year out from that decision. So I wouldn't necessarily recommend it, but that's my take. I, I'm curious to see how you yeah. saw all that decision. Cause a lot of people might say you're being super irresponsible and crazy for quitting your job uh, with a relatively small uh, monthly income from your creative projects. Yeah. Um, and I think like to some extent they're right. Like it, it is risky. Um, I, so, you know, if I were going to give people like a one liner on when they should quit their jobs, 
I would say when they're convinced that they should pull it off. So basically the answer that you gave um, more, more sort of boiled down into a, <laughs> like an inane slogan. But um, I, uh, I, I had a very similar perspective to you where it was like once I had tested the market enough to believe that I could earn the amount of money that I needed to or like that I could get to um, being able to earn the amount that I needed to within like a relatively manageable time frame. Uh, I was like, all right, let's fucking do it. Like, cause I can get there faster if I spend full time focusing on it. Um, like I would say that for me, the big, like I've always had copious time to work on things, but my concentration is a very limited resource. Like my, it's like executive function and then like creative wellspring are both very limited um, relative to the amount of time in the day. Uh, so like making myself do things is, is really the hard thing for me. Um, and it's much, much, much easier to do things if it's things that I came up with that I'm fully in control of that, um, that, that, that are like my things that I own. Um, I'm just a very like very independent minded kind of person. And I also really love owning the process end to end. Um, like I really like having that holistic like product experience control. It's very, very satisfying. Like it's just intrinsically uh, sort of like, yeah, it's intrinsically satisfying. And, and then I like just for sort of obvious reasons, I like being able to decide what to do. Um, but so about the like when to quit your job thing, um, I think if you're a hustler, you'll know when, um, you'll figure it out. Uh, and if you're not a hustler, you probably shouldn't quit your job. So <laughs> I, I'm not even sure that it's like the kind of thing you can give advice on. Because like for me, there were two triggers. There were two like uh, it was it was something I had been thinking about for months and thinking about more for weeks because I was just getting I was like less and less engaged in my day to day work and I really cared like I loved my team, loved the institution, really actually cared about like I still do care about the values and principles behind the Zcash Foundation, but I've been there for two years, which is the the longest I've ever worked at a single job. Um, so I was, I was just like, I just needed something new. And then I did this uh, one-off like fundraising experiment where um, I, you know, it, there was all this talk about people not being able to get any kind of like at the point before people were getting their, um, their Trump bucks. Um, I was so worried. I was like, people d just like do not have cash flow right now. What the fuck? Like then just how, how do you buy groceries if you don't have any money coming in? because you're not allowed to work like that. And I was seeing that the government was not going to move anywhere near fast enough to solve this problem. Um, and obviously as just one person, I can't solve the problem either, but I can be a drop in the bucket. And I was like, all right, well, since I can be a drop in the bucket, it's going to make me feel better about how horrible this is if I do that. So I did this uh, like mutual aid experiment where basically people could send money to me and I had a like Google form or Google form. Yeah, whatever it's called uh, application thing where you just like gave me your your Venmo, your Square Cash, your PayPal. And then I would send you money like however I could. And you gave me like a little summary of your circumstances, etc. Um, and so I raised $5,000 in one day. And to me, like in the grand scheme of things, not a lot of money. To me, I was like, holy shit, I didn't realize that that was possible. Like I was expecting maybe like three to $500 to come in and that I would, you know, I'd be able to help out like two or three people. Um, but it ended up being more like 20. 
That's amazing. So that, Real quick, could you could you break down exactly what were you offering them? Like what was the what was the value proposition exactly? I didn't quite understand it. To the like for the donors or Yeah. Ba- yeah, so basically the value proposition was send me money and I will give it to somebody who needs it. But uh so it was framed as mutual aid for mutuals. Oh, so you were giving that money have- that money didn't go to you. You were giving it out. No, no, no. It wasn't for me. It was giving right. it out. So this okay. is a very, like, this is a definitely a different proposition from like, give money to me personally. Yeah. Um, but it, so the thing that I found really like the, that made this very symbolically important to me was that just that people trusted me to dispense the money. Um, and mm. so that it just, it just felt, I felt like if I can do this kind of thing, if I can have this kind of impact on people's lives in a very like quick, like this was so quick. It was so whim based. Right. Like, what other whims do I have that could be like this? You know, that could be this kind of, and I don't have necessarily the room or the bandwidth to express as many of those whims as I would like to. Right. Uh, and then um, P. Marka, or sorry, Mark Andreessen uh, published his Time to Build blog post. And I read it and I was so fired up. I was like, all right, it's time to build. <laughs> so, um, and that kind of was the final trigger of quitting my job. <laughs> wow, interesting. So one thing you said there that I think is really good to pause on, I think it's really important is how when you when you first start experimenting with anything online that involves money, it, it can really kind of uh, be quite inspiring and it kind of changes your mentality about what's possible. Mm-hmm. this really resonates with me because I've had similar experiences where like you, you just want to try some random thing. Um, and simply by putting a price tag on it and I just, just basically kind of crossing that threshold from doing things online for fun, for free, and just asking for a little bit of money. It's such a, it's such a shift. Right. And it, and it, and it really like opens up this new world where you're like, wait, you mean I can come up with crazy ideas and put money price tag on it? And people will randomly trust me enough to, to pay. And it does increase your responsibility. Of course, you do have to follow through. But as long as you follow through, you do start to, you prove to yourself that you're capable of, of delivering and, and you prove to other people that you're reliable and that you will deliver. And so I think that's really important to pause on because I think for people who are thinking about playing around with these different types of projects, one of the most important things you can do is just come up with some silly little thing that has some amount of payment attached to it anything. It doesn't matter because it really does have a profound effect on how you think about what's possible. Would you agree with that? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think it, and how you think about what's possible, I think is a really important theme here. Um, and I, I, I don't even, this actually bothers me a lot because I feel like people are incredibly passive and don't see their own agency or their own capabilities. Um, and I don't know, maybe that's me like projecting or who knows, well, like I could be wrong, but it feels that way to me that people have so much more potential than they're willing to like take a risk on trying to develop it, I guess. Um, mm. Like I, I, I know there people are risk averse about things that don't even parse to me as risks. Like, right. so the idea so I, I know people who are really hesitant about publishing their writing, say um, mm. I, this is like a super common thing. And to me, that is like very weird because when you publish your writing, uh, one, like nobody pays attention to it unless you already have a following, like just no, nobody cares unless it's interesting. So you have to like any attention you get is earned, uh, unless you already have a following. 
Um, right. So like if your writing sucks, just nobody is going to notice. I say this all the time. Like I think the way I put it usually is the worst that can happen is nothing. And when you yeah. think about it that way, you suddenly become, uh, I think, much more liberated to just fuck around. And I think like a good mm-hmm. lesson already in this talk so far is that uh, if you're interested in doing this type of more ambitious intellectual project online in a financially sustainable way, probably the one of the first things you could do to start is just come up with some simple little weird random idea and charge like a dollar for it just to your like Twitter friends that you have literally, you have nothing to lose. Nothing. Even if you completely fail, nothing's going to happen. But like any, literally anyone in the world, even if you only, not anyone in the world, but if you have even like 100 Twitter followers, you can get three of them to pay you $2 for some random, weird, silly, fun experiment that you're personally just interested in playing around with. And I think, so So that is probably one of the quickest, easiest, simplest things you could do. Obviously, it's not going to make you a living, but it can it can rapidly get you on the path to thinking about bigger and bigger and better ideas and proving to yourself that you're capable rolling. of doing it. Yeah. And I, I also think like marketing is something that a lot of like intellectually minded people have absolutely no grasp of whatsoever (laughs) like the idea of say um i read a lot of writing that was clearly not edited with a reading with a reader in mind and like i like long-winded nerds relatively speaking um but some of y'all are so much more long-winded and nerdy that i can possibly put up with um and i that's to some extent that's like personal taste but also i think there is a general like people don't necessarily people think about like I want to make this thing I'm going to make the thing how I want to make it and I fully support that that's really good and that's like at least that's where all of my creative urges come from but there has to be or at least my process has to involve a second layer which is like how do I shape this into something that people will actually want mm-hmm. um and so there I mean there's just sort of like prose minutiae of that of just like making your sentences more readable but there's also like um uh, say like the inverted pyramid of uh, journalistic writing. Um, I think the inverted pyramid is uh, like factual inverted pyramid is the wrong way to think about it. For, Summarize what uh, you mean by that quickly, if you would. Oh yeah. So the idea of the inverted pyramid is that like you put, you front load all of the information so that right. like someone can read the first sentence and get the gist of the story. They can right. read the first paragraph and get a slightly expanded gist of the story. Okay. Thanks. Uh, right. Like et cetera, et cetera. Um, So I think you want to do that, but with like interestingness and like engagingness. Uh, So it doesn't have to be facts, but like say um, every newsletter that I send, this is like a small example. I have a beautiful piece of art as the like header image. So if you don't read the newsletter, even if you just click in and look at the beautiful piece of art and then delete the email, I have rewarded you for engaging with me. Hmm. Like I'm, I'm offering... I, so I see that as really important that you want to reward people at every depth of engagement. Right so on. if they like, if you just see a tweet, that should be rewarding. If you sign up for my newsletter, it should be rewarding if you spend like 10 minutes reading every issue. Uh, so it should be like rewarding in depth. And then you also want to sort of build out this kind of quasi like expanded universe. So if someone is really interested in what you make or if someone is really interested in your ideas, there should be like, they should be able to go see like, here's every podcast that you've been on. Uh, I haven't actually done that specifically because I'm lazy, but I should have. <laughs> um, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Well, it's a ton of work building out that expanding universe. I'm also aware of this insight and I completely agree. And I also haven't done 50% of what I could do to really organize all of that, all of the stuff I've done in the past. So it's just hard to keep up with yourself, right? Uh, mm-hmm. So Especially now, if okay. you're prolific. Yeah, so... 
real quick, I I don't know if I asked this before. So the newsletter that you do is that is that uh, subscribers only, like paid subscribers only, or is it free? It depends on what I feel like. Like, um, right? Okay, so you do uh, like some free, free. You do some free and some paid only. Yeah, I'm planning to. Um, I think more more like personal and more tentative stuff goes is like subscribers only. The zines are subscribers only. Everything else is free right now. But I think I'm going to do, I want to do more exclusive content, both because it sounds fun and it's something I haven't done very much. So it's like, I may not, I may experiment with exclusive content and decide like, ah, that isn't really what works for me. Or I may decide like, oh, this is actually amazing and people really like it. Like it it is, this is so new and nascent that this kind of like figuring out my own product market fit is sort of the first item on the agenda. Uh, and it's kind of like progressively progressively honing the product so it fits a larger and larger market. Because right now I have product market fit for this like very small market of people who know and like me already. Uh, and so I need to first expand the top of the funnel, which is people who know and like me. But I also want to expand the middle and the bottom of the funnel, which is like making a more and more compelling product so that the people who know and like me are, are like, yes, I, and I also want to give you money. Right. So, okay. So that's interesting. So you you just spelled out a little bit about how you're seeing your, your strategy moving forward, but I would love to know in a little bit more detail how you plan on, like, what's your current game plan for uh, attacking this serious ambition of 12Xing your, your monthly income in six months? Like, what, what's your actual game plan for doing that? I'm curious. Um. So my like near term game this is going to sound so insane but i'm just going to tell you i like it um, i so like next month i'm going to publish a short story that i've like commissioned and edited uh i'm going to do an artist in residence program that i haven't uh fully worked out the details of but it's going to there's going to be some kind of stipend the stipend is kind of the sticking point right now cuz i want it to be substantial like ideally it would be like $1200 but i don't have the revenue right now to support that so I'm trying to figure out like what is the right uh, what is the right intersection point of what I'm asking for from the person who does the artist in residence like what is their their side of the exchange uh, and then also like I I don't I am like I I don't think that like unpaid internships should be illegal or whatever but I personally am not really comfortable with having any kind of like unpaid or like I really I yeah I want to pay people. Uh, sure. That's important to me just as like a values thing. Um, but I think it's also something that my subscribers are interested in. Like my my long-term goal here is to kickstart a village economy. Like, and I think that's kind of what you're doing also. Like I see us as allies in this uh, this grander venture of like, mm-hmm. we, we should be a self-sustaining micro economy. <laughs> like the people who like what we make should pay for it. And then we should source new talent and pay them and give them their start and then have this like virtuous cycle. That's like, so that's what I want to do. And um, uh, so I, my, my sort of meta game plan is like find other people who are kind of like one or two levels below me in establishedness and then give them a jumpstart and figure out how to sell their output because they don't know how to do it. Okay. Interesting. That's, that, that's one, um, I think, major divergence between you yeah. and I, because up until now, I mean, I, oh, yeah. I agree with all your visions and, and values. It sounds awesome. Uh, but for me, uh, up until now, like up, yeah, so far to date, I've been, I've been kind of militantly 
independent and solo. I've done a few, just a few, and only recently, uh, kind of collaborative ventures that involved uh, kind of shared responsibilities and shared shared revenue splits. Um, I don't want to do that. I'm so okay. Fair enough. Well, I just wanted pure, to ask. I mean, commission basis. I don't. I don't really want to collaborate. I want to commission because uh, collaborating okay. is really annoying. True. True. Right. So, okay. So that, that's very interesting. So, um, yeah, because on my end, the way that I've, I'm, I'm just kind of terrified of like getting involved with other people because, uh, like, I trust myself, and I just don't know what. I'm just scared of basically like. Uh, making any part of my success and my my vision at all dependent on anyone else, even if they're really great and smart and I trust them just because you never know. And I like having that. It's like you it, said before, this is all I, about I like complete be, independence and control. It has to be very modular. So they can't be a d- dependency. And that's one of the difficult things. Like if they flake, it shouldn't impede me at all. So that's right. what I don't like about um, many and I, so I said, I don't want to collaborate. I want to commission. Then I immediately felt bad about that. Cause like, I see the, like, say the editorial process that give the, like I'm editing the short story right now. That is a very collaborative process. But if the other guy, like dis- if he disappears, um, it doesn't make it so that I can't continue with stuff. It just means that I drop this one, um, you know, this one short story that I'm planning to publish becomes a sunk cost if he like flakes for whatever right. reason, I'm not right. expecting him to, but if that happened, it has a relatively low impact on me. So and you like, that's yeah. like there, this is something meta that you brought up earlier is that like make bets that have a capped cost of failure, but unbounded upside. So like, I like I, it. I like it. So I you mean, like commissions because it's, yeah. uh, it's insulated. It's self-contained. So if one goes bad, it's mm-hmm. not the end of the world. And if it goes good, it's good. But and also, yeah, I mean, I want a kind of cultural VC model here where I'm, I'm like the A&R guy sourcing talent. Um, and I, I sort of want to see, like, can I pick a hit? Can I produce a hit? Yeah. Like, you know, find someone who say has a, you know, it, I'm also, I'm planning to like gradually, gradually increase scope, right? Like right now I'm publishing a short story. Uh, and this is an example. I've also done so like, there's some visual art commissions that are going to be um, part of the next zine. Um, and other stuff along those lines, like I want to make a game in the, like a small playful game, uh, in the playful game, obviously, uh, in the next couple of months, just like I've never made a game before. Uh, I know some people who make cool games, like let's, I don't know, let's see what we can figure out right. um, and how we can set up the arrangement for that criteria that I've mentioned, which is the, like the, uh, you want a capped downside, unbounded upside. And that right is like, that's quitting my job, right? Like I, um, the, the, but some people wouldn't see it that way, but those people aren't me. Like the thing is, I know I can get another job. Like I, if I decide that I want to go back to normal work, like in three months or something like this doesn't seem to be working, I can get a job like pretty easily. Um, And that sounds like, this is another thing. Like that sounds so fucking arrogant, but like to, to be honest about making, about taking these risks and making these bets, I feel like I have to own up to, I am to some extent extraordinary. Like you're not supposed to say that, but it is true. And I think you are also like most people can't do this. That is true. Well, in some ways for both material and like character reasons, but in, you know, in other ways though, you're just being, you're actually being realistic and honest. It is a fact that most people, at least, especially people who kind of in our circles on the internet, like if you're doing creative intellectual stuff on the internet, you probably have some education. You're probably 
like uh, have a pretty decent IQ. Like you're probably pretty okay um, in the scheme of things, right? You know, in, in the kind of global distributions of, I don't, of, I don't of think economic opportunity. Can pull it off. Well, all I wanted to say was that I don't think you're really being arrogant to say it's just a job. I can get another job easily. That's actually true for most people who will be listening to this. And, you know, it's it's actually an important point to pause on because in academia, you would be amazed how many people with PhDs in a good career, they feel like if they left academia, they couldn't get a job. They, there are lots of people who actually feel like that. They think, oh, I couldn't do anything else. I'd be helpless if I lost my job. And it's crazy. It's fucking insane because you have a fucking PhD. You're not going to starve. You're really not. And so like when I, like I would say this kind of thing when I was deciding to, when I was getting ready to quit, I would say this kind of thing. And, and like, you would be amazed how much kind of pessimism and fear and anxiety there is even among people who are eminently employable. And so you saying that, you know, it's not, so it's, it's not really arrogant. It's actually like quite a basic, just realistic um, somewhat optimistic, but realistic attitude, which is actually more calibrated to reality than a lot of the, like the fear and the anxiety, to be honest. I, you know, I would push back on that. I would, yeah. I think that the people who have the fear and anxiety, it, it's almost like self, it's like self-justifying. If you're not brave enough to take risks, then you're probably right that you can't pull off taking risks. Yeah. That's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah. So um, I, I think like, it's kind of mean to say that because I'm sure there are people listening to this being like, oh shit, that's kind of me, but I'm sorry. <laughs> like it is what it is. I hear you. Yeah, for sure. Now yeah. maybe we should do a little segment on zines because you've been selling zines yeah. for a while of all the things Wait, that me, of, of, of all a, the different like physical copy. of all the different kind sorry, of uh, internet content games out there. Zines might be the one that you're up until now anyway, most specialized in, you could say. So uh, I know some people who would like to produce zines. Uh, in fact, there are some members of IndieThinkers.org who either have made zines in the past or who are interested in making zines. So I know there are people in my in my world who are interested in this. So uh, let's talk for yes. a little bit about the, the nitty gritty with respect to successfully uh, producing and selling zines on the internet. Now you do a model where it's mostly an online selling process, but then people who buy your zine mm -hmm. receive a paper product in the mail. For instance, I have here with me today, a zine that from, from oh, Zone, nice. uh, that uh, my wife and I bought a few months back. And um, as you can see, you know, it's super cute. It's real paper. You can touch it in your hands. It's artful, it's elegant, and it's got like really cool kind of custom cute things like an envelope uh, pasted to the back with uh, slips of, uh, art, artful paper in it and all kinds of, That's yeah, a just great example like, of like a whim based thing that an institution would never do because it took so fucking long, dude. Like I, I individually pasted those to the back of each one. Okay. So let's, let's break this down for people. So first just paint us a picture of, of what is the system? Like what tools do you use to sell it? What's like the process you use to launch and and then concretely, how do you produce it and mail it out? Can you just kind of break that down for us? Yeah. So I started out um, using, oh, this is my cat, Polara. <laughs> Hi. Hi, Polara. <laughs> Thank you for joining yeah, us. Uh, I started um, I started out actually, so the first time I made a zine, I, I just like printed it off on my parents' printer and then like stapled it together. Um, zines are... One of the great things about zines is that it's like a very grassroots publishing medium and it's a very DIY, like just kind of cobble it together, do whatever you have at hand. Um, so a lot of what I'm about to say is based on what I have at hand and then what I also like just perceive as being in my universe of tools, so to speak. Um, so for selling, what I recommend is Gumroad. 
Uh, I don't think Gumroad existed when I first started making zines, which was like in high school. And I also wasn't selling them. I was just giving them away. Um, so yeah, Gumroad is good for selling. It's both like the fees are relatively cheap and um, it's just like, it's very, it's very modular. Like it's good. You can just kind of slot it in anywhere. Like if you have a website, if you have a blog, if you have social media, whatever. Right. Um, I think honestly, Gumroad is amazing really, product. It's amazing. It's it's so flexible and powerful and it just works. And it's it's so cheap for, for everything you get. It's a, a Gumroad is amazing, a I think. a thousand times like... Patreon is such a ripoff compared to Gumroad. Um, and also Patreon, uh, the website sucks. Like everything about the website sucks. Whereas Gumroad, it's super smooth. Everything works. There's tons of bells and whistles and uh, it's just really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I would say Gumroad is like oriented towards being a delivery system rather than towards being a platform. And that makes it so much better and so much mm. better suited to like what a individual creator actually needs. So um, let's go into detail on how do you how do you build that Gumroad product for a zine, and what are some tips and tricks that you kind of learned along the way about how to do that well? Uh, so I keep it very bare bones. I don't write a lot of copy. Like so, say the little description. My let's say my goal with I I am big on like teasers and provocations. I want to um, arouse people's curiosity and draw the like give the give it's like a hook. You want to give people a hook. Um, but the hook doesn't need to be, at least in my experience, doesn't need to be like long and elaborate. Like it'll just be like one short paragraph. Um, so, uh, like for example, here's one of my, this is my most recent zine, this is clandestine motives. Um, and my description for clandestine motives is, sorry, I'm going to have to pull it up. It's going to take yeah, like sure. a second. Um, but it's, it's really, really short. Um, One moment. Oh, yeah. So the description is joy in secrets and the joy of secrets, hidden sanctuary and the horror of its exposure, cards held close to the chest for reasons that are nobody else's business. But here, take a peek anyway. Eyeballs emoji. So that's my entire description of the zine. Um, and that's pretty typical of almost anything that I sell is like just short, um, short and sweet. And and I, it's like it's an ethos, right? It's like this. This publication um, is, I mean, it's it's nice because it's something you can hold in your hand. It's like, it's tactile. It's aesthetically engaging. It's like all this multi-layered. Um, so it's like, it's fun to look at and explore. And I guess fun to explore is just kind of what I'm aiming for overall. And so do you do pre-sales on Gumroad? So you take sales and then you make it and send it out? Or how do you do that? No, um, I just... This is another like taking risks kind of thing. Like if you're not if you're not confident enough about selling a zine to spend like 300 bucks on getting it printed, you probably shouldn't sell this. So you'll do all the work. Unfair, but So you'll do all the work first and then only when it's ready you make an you make a product on Gumroad and you let people buy it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm and not big, you, like I personally am not big on the like Kickstarter model for the pre-commitment reason. Like I don't want to pre-commit to delivering an exact thing because usually the creation process changes what it is. So I'd rather know what I'm going to be offering at the end of that process and then ask people to buy it because then okay. I can accurately describe what I'm making um, or okay. what, I, what I'm offering them. Yeah. Yeah. That fair, that's fair enough for sure. I, I, I'm kind of a huge fan of uh, the, the pre-sale uh, method, if you will. Uh, but it, it's it great to hear. It has its benefits. It's I'm great not to hear your perspective. It. Yeah. 
Um, so, okay. So, and what about mailing out? So I've only ever done a few experiments in my time that involved actually mailing things like one time. And actually this is kind of an example of something we talked about before about just doing some random, quick, easy thing just to start like learning how to pull in money and how to manage it and how to, how to build systems that do that. Um, one thing I did uh, a long time ago was when I had to move house, um, I had a bunch of books that I couldn't afford to ship back to America. This is actually when I was leaving academia, in fact. And, uh, so I, I like put a I put a type form up uh, really quickly and just basically said, um, uh, if you'd like one of my books, I'll send it to you. Just tell me a little bit about like what you like to read. And it was a fun little it was it was a fun little kind of gamified thing. I had I honestly had to get rid of books, uh, but it would it was nice to try to make some money back off of them. And I think I did a kind of pay what you want type of model or something like that. I forget how I did it, but I just made it a little type form. I feel was, like you almost definitely lost thing. money on this, didn't you? Um, I don't know. I, I never, I, I don't think I did the analysis, but, but it's like what I was saying before I was learning how to make money. I was learning how to launch products. Yeah. I was experiment and I was experimenting with, with just fun things to try. Right. So I think I probably ended up bro- breaking even, but that's yeah, all I really wanted to do. Really. Cost is yeah. I highly recommend doing things at cost like that, that first zine, the, um, instructions unclear, which I also, I grabbed a copy of it. Um, that I, I think I sold that for five bucks which was like, I'm pretty sure I lost money on that from the, like just getting it printed and then shipping is fucking expensive. Um, And it's also a huge pain in the ass. So like the answer to how I mail things is that I literally do it manually. So this is what I wanted to ask you about. Small enough scale, yeah. Okay, so this is what I wanted to ask you about because from that one experience, the reason I mentioned it was I learned that shipping things is a huge pain in the ass. And I pretty much walked away from that experience like it was fine, but I pretty much walked away from that experience thinking I'm never going to ship anything manually ever again just because it's not worth it. So tell me, like, why do you why do you choose a method that is uh, difficult and 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 ha- and I'm sure you've learned some things along the way, no matter how small, that make it a little bit less painful and more efficient. Um. So the things. I have learned that's made it. Yeah. So the reason why I do it at all is because I just like making physical products that much. Um, It's just worth it to me uh, because I, like I said, I really enjoy, like I enjoy these as like tactile exploratory objects. And that's just not something I can really deliver on the internet. Like I would compare it to say um, like buying a book on Amazon, super, super convenient, but it's not the same as going into an indie bookstore and then like wandering around and sure. looking at the weird staff shelf and stuff like that. Yep. So I think I want, I'm more interested in that indie bookstore kind of experience. Like it's just what I want to make. Yeah. It's um, what you're into. And there's almost, yeah. And I, I would say like, there's kind of, I didn't go into it with this perspective, but there is like a post hoc uh, justification, which is that, um, it's re- like getting getting mail that is not bills or other bullshit is really delightful. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm giving people just a really like it is just a really nice experience to get this like artsy mail. Um, and it's something it, I found that it's not really it's not why people sign up. Um, people aren't act, like people aren't actually that interested <laughs> in the concept of getting a zine every month. But I think they like the reality of getting a zine every month more than hmm. they expect to. Um, that it's and it's just it's a way that I appear in people's lives. Like I show up at your house with the you know sort of conceptually with this missive that I'm offering to you. Uh, so I guess I like that whole interaction. Um, I like that it's personal. I like that it is like literally tactile. Um, so that that to me is worth the hassle of. St- 
stamps and envelopes. And cool. Everything. Yeah. Then, um, then good for you. It's worth it. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, I logistically, it's like, I mean, have you ever sent a piece of mail? It's like doing that, but 25 times. Right. So I'm sure you have a, an assembly line that is a little bit more efficient than when you first started. Like what are little things, no. if someone <laughs> wants to do this, what are little things they, they should be on the lookout for? Um, oh, okay. So I guess there are a few things. I, I, I feel like they're so obvious that they won't be useful, but that's usually kind of a deceptive feeling. Um, so I would say buy, like buy envelopes is one thing. <laughs> Um, so instead of, I think, uh, like specifically, oh, you know what? actually this is a really key thing. Everything is based on weight and dimensions. So like before you need to price all of this out in advance. Um, so when you have like, this is different from doing stuff on the internet, on the internet, it's effectively completely free to publish. Uh, it's not completely free, but usually like costs don't start kicking in until you, until you start taking money. That's very different from zines, which um, like one, unless you're doing a Kickstarter, like pre-sale option, uh, which I don't like because it doesn't work with my creative process. Um, you have to pay in advance to get them printed. Uh, and then it costs money to ship them. Like uh, I think clandestine motives is like 150 each copy to ship because it's um, seven inches by seven inches, which is weird dimensions. Uh, and so it counts as a large envelope for USPS, which makes it slightly more expensive than a mm. like normal size envelope as determined by USPS. Um, mm. I would say like USPS as a subsidized shipping method is part of what I'm taking advantage of here. Like I may be wrong, but I suspect it would cost more um, if USPS was not like a nationalized service for me to ship things. Um, and also the whole like last mile aspect of it would be mm. really, really difficult, um, without, so this is kind of predicated on the existence of a national postal service. Um, sure. Uh, yeah. Okay. Oh, but, oh, so where I was going with that dimensions of weight are going to determine your shipping cost, And, um, you need to build that into your price, uh, especially if you're trying to actually make money. Like if you're selling things at costs, you can just work it out. Like, oh, this is how much it's going to cost. So I need to charge X amount. But if you want to make money, you kind of need to work it out in advance and decide, I, I guess you could just go along and then, but you need, like, you need to have a price that people will actually pay. So that's like, that is the constraint on how much you can charge. And then the constraint on how little you can charge is your costs. And you need to figure out where you want to be in between those two numbers. Um, so like, actually, I think I probably... I, yeah, I don't know. Like pricing is really difficult. I like I the only way I figured out how to do pricing is through trial and error. So like uh, that the zine that you had was five dollars a pop. Uh, this zine is twenty three dollars. Oh wow! <laughs> so it's like, nice. Yeah, uh, and that part of that is because it's a charity fundraising project, uh, and then part of that is just because I have a much better sense of like the value of things um, now. Right. And also I'm much more confident in charging like an actual premium. Like I think when I first started selling things online, I was like, okay, I have to charge the bare minimum and offer as much as I possibly can for people to, uh, to be willing to buy something. And now I have a very different perspective, which is this is a luxury product. Like, if you if you are you know if you work like a prototypical minimum wave job or whatever you would have to be insane to spend money on any of this like this is something right like I like wealthy people can afford what I make and people who aren't wealthy aren't and this is true of like almost every artistic business of any sort um, 
So like being a luxury product, being a premium thing is part of my, I don't know, overall brand strategy or something. Like, I think that's really smart. I have a monopoly on Sonia, so I can charge more. I think that's really smart. You know, I think um, at first, like when you first start selling stuff on the internet, you're super uh, intimidated and, and lacking confidence because you're like, as you were saying, you feel arrogant. You feel arrogance kind of putting a price tag on something and because uh, that's implying that it's worth, that it's valuable, right? And and it's hard to know if your work is valuable before you pr- put a price tag on it because until there's a price tag on it, you're not actually sure if it's valuable to anyone. Like even if people are reading your free stuff, do they really value it enough to cough up money? So when you first put a price tag on something, um, you always make that price tag probably lower than it actually should be um, because you lack confidence. But I think you're absolutely right that after that, after your first few, what they call like tripwire products, like you're, when you, after you get your feet wet selling some things, then you start to realize, oh, actually I was undervaluing myself and um, I actually need to increase the prices. And in fact, this is common in startup world also in like tech businesses, like tech, like small, small bootstrapped tech businesses, which is frankly where I learned almost everything I currently know about how to do the content game with sophistication. I pretty much just stole everything I learned from the, like the tech startup world. And, uh, Oh God, me too. I, yeah. Yeah. I wonder how should, is the advice that we should have been giving, like you need to read a ton of startup bro marketing shit and then you'll get it. Um, honestly, I think there's a ton of value in the tech startup, uh, literature or just the, the, the conventional wisdoms there and the best practices yeah. there. Um, I think there's it's, ton, it's a community a ton. of practice also. For sure. For sure. But frankly, I mean, people don't have to go read all that stuff. They can just like listen to us, right? That's what we're trying to do now is we're trying to actually just digest it for people really, right? And one of the things you learn in the tech startup world right now is people are constantly pointing out like people are undercharging. And it's one of the most common reasons, small side projects, startup, you know, bootstrap startups. One of the most common reasons that they fail is that that people are not charging enough. If you charge $5 a month for your product, it's you need so many people for that to be a viable business. But if you just make it a little bit more valuable and you, and you position it as a niche high value premium thing, and you charge 50 bucks a month, instead, all of a sudden you need way less people to get on board for you to have like a very viable um, lifestyle business. And uh, I think this type of insight is going to trickle into the content creator game. Like I see people who have Patreons and like their minimum level is $1. Like mine was too for a while. And I learned that's so stupid. Like you should not have a $1 minimum tier on Patreon. It's just too low. It barely pays the processing fees. Uh, like you should not have a $1 tier on Patreon. You simply should not. It's way too low. $5 at minimum, I think. Uh, Substack was really smart about that. They set $5 as the minimum that anyone is like can charge on their platform. And I think that was really smart. Like if you're not like it's, it's, if you spent time on something, there's no way it's sub one. It, like it, it, it can't be sub one dollar value and still worth paying for. That's just like not really a thing, um, right? And, and I you think made that a... people like. Hmm. Oh, well, I was about to say maybe what you're going to say that the price is a very important communication with your customer or like with your like whoever you're trying to reach, um, and like people think of things like branding and marketing often as deceptive. The way that I think about it is making your value legible to people. Um, people don't like people both don't want to and generally just won't like try to work to understand what you're offering. Uh, like the person who does that is rare and more likely to be a peer, I think. Um, like someone you're going to have a friendship with, say. But if you're looking for customers, 
what you want to offer them is something like obvious, easy, and appealing. So the obvious and easy part, and also the appealing part, like you just have to frame what you're offering in a way that makes sense to people and appeals to them, <laughs> um, which yeah. sounds so obvious, but people like largely do not do it. <laughs> but also you learn to do it over time. Like it probably is good yeah, for your it's first- iterative. For yeah, for your first few things to be underpriced, it's probably good because you are uh, you do lack confidence. You're not actually sure if you can deliver value, and you're not actually sure what it's worth. What it's worth. So yeah, maybe for your first few things, testing the market is really important. Yeah, so it's probably inevitable and maybe even necessary and good to under underprice things at the beginning just to get your feet wet. But you 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 do have to it's rapidly a update part of the process. Yeah, but you do have to update rapidly and realize like if you want to make it work and you really want to you want like a viable lifestyle doing this kind of stuff, you have to learn rapidly um to to increase the prices to make, to actually reflect what it's worth. And I think you made a really good point before which I want to flag for people, which is that you kind of realize at a certain point that ultimately it's a luxury it's a luxury purchase. Like you're kind of biting that bullet and I think that's really really good insight which is not obvious to people. Like people think that their that their buyers are going to have this kind of like utilitarian mindset of like is this have enough value for it to be worth the $5 they're asking. This kind of this kind of like shopkeeper's mentality of is it really worth it? Is it providing the value that matches the price? But the fact is, like if you're an intellectual or or or, or a true artist and you're making goods that are at the end of the day, they're not really about providing economic value to someone else. They're not going to help someone get a job. They're not going to give someone some kind of immediate, tangible, concrete yeah. uh, ben- benefit. Zine, if that, you if, can't sell a zine based on ROI because like that just doesn't make any fucking sense. Yeah, if you if you're if you're doing intellectual work or truly creative artistic work, the fact is. Um, it's not going to be providing value. So people are not going to be buying it on that basis. They're going to be buying it because it means something to them because the, because they want it in their life, because they want to be a part of it. It's these kind of categorical uh, kind of attachments and investments that people have in you and, and what you represent and wanting to be a part of it and wanting it in their life in some way. So when you realize that, you realize every purchase, no matter what the price tag is, it's essentially someone making a, a kind of a kind of small scale luxury um, kind of self-indulgence decision. And when you realize that, it really does change the game because then you realize, okay, I shouldn't price this in a utilitarian way. I shouldn't be thinking about what it's like worth in terms of immediate value, but I should actually price it as the luxury good that it is. And instead of five bucks, I'll ask 20 bucks. And and that makes much more sense in that in that type of perspective. And I really do think that's true. So I'm glad you said that. And it is, I mean, it's a way, it also... I think for like for this sort of individual creator with an audience model, it's explicitly it's an investment in me continuing to do this. So like someone buying like they know they're they're not stupid. They know that this didn't cost twenty three dollars to print and send. Um, they are intentionally uh, like yes, I like what you do and I want you to continue doing it, and that's part of why I'm willing to pay more than I would for you know like just like. It's not, it's less, I, this is what I meant about the, when I brought up parasociality earlier, like that there, there, there is a relationship, there's a connection. And then that is part of, that. it's part of what matters. It's part of what makes it worth paying for is the presence of that connection. And the, the, like the energy, like the, the willingness and the commitment on both sides to continue sustaining the connection. Um, and to continue feeding it and like um, investing in wanting it to thrive, I guess. Right on. Yeah, I, I, th- I think that's that's very well put. Do you think there's anything you're doing uh, that is particularly clever and working quite well that that is a, is a bit of a kind of trade secret you've discovered that people might be interested to 
to to know about? I'm just kind of curious. Hmm. I feel like so much about what I do is dictated by my personality. So it's less that like, it's, I feel like there's been this long iterative process of trying to figure out how to like, how to like, what are the highest perform like, what are the highest ROI parts of my personality or something? Or like, how do I work around my personality in a way to make it produce ROI? Um, so like some things, I feel like a lot of things like say the, the testing the market and experimentation, like experimenting with selling stuff. Um, I didn't really, I didn't like figure out that that was a good thing to do and start doing it because of that. I started doing it just because I wanted to, uh, right. it was just like a thing that I did. Uh, and then I figured out afterwards the ways in which it was advantageous. So there's like trial and error is just, maybe that is the thing. It's just experiment trial and error failure is not as costly as you think it is. Uh, and I would, I, I do think that like, that's another, like talk about your successes, but not your failures. And people won't even know that they exist. Like I almost feel guilty. Like, I feel like I should uh, tell you about all of the like terrible side project ideas that I had that totally crashed and burned. Oh, you should um, please tell us your worst one. Uh, okay. I'll tell you the most embarrassing one. This is the one that okay. sticks in my mind the most. Um, I've, Oh God, what did I, I don't even remember what I named it, but it was like your prototypical, like, I'm going to teach you how to do marketing kind of like, here's my ebook, like buy the PDF. Oh yeah. Um, this totally flopped because I had no idea what I was doing. Like, this was just completely me. It was, it was cargo culting. It was like mm -hmm. exactly cargo culting where like I set up a WordPress blog. I had like an, Am I still have an Amazon affiliates account that I don't use for the brief period of time when I was like, I'm going to make money online through affiliate sales. Like, I think I, I, so when you brought up the like startup marketing and stuff, like I just kind of churned through a whole bunch of like make money online, obvious ideas. Uh -huh. And it just like didn't work that well, but I learned a lot from doing it. Um, so I think that like that kind of willingness to just like put yourself out there and try shit and be willing to be embarrassed if it doesn't work. Um, I, and I would say like, uh, the, 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 the cost of failure being relatively low is also something that I figured out through trial and error. Like I didn't, I went into all of this stuff, like totally convinced that it was going to work. And actually this is maybe, this is like a weird superpower is like being able to convince yourself that stuff is going to work. Um, like I, uh, I, this is something that, so I was mentioning risk aversion earlier and how it drives me crazy that people are so risk averse. Um, like relative to what I feel is the correct level of risk aversion, I guess, with no real justification. Um, I, uh, I, it's not, it's not that I like see things as risky and I'm like, yes, I'm going to take that risk. It's that I intellectually know that things are risky, but I am like fully emotionally convinced that I'm going to succeed. Like I just, uh, yeah. I, I don't know. <laughs> I just convinced that I'm going to succeed. So like what I say, I could go back to a normal job. I know that I could, and I academically know that it's a possibility, but I'm like a hundred percent all in on being independent. Like I don't expect to have to go back to a normal job because I'm like, I'm, I'm just, I'm going to be able to pull it off. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, no, I know that attitude for sure. <laughs> and I also, I like what you said about having a kind of, uh, a kind of graveyard of, of failed projects. I think most people who do the kind of stuff that we do and have this kind of drive, uh, also like, I also have a, an embarrassing graveyard of failed projects. And it's funny actually what you said, because I too, at one point, several years ago, um, 
this was when I was an academic. This is when I was starting to kind of feel like uh, maybe academia sucks, but I wasn't anywhere near quitting my job, but I was starting to play around with ideas for like building an income outside of academia. And I, I also did like a, um, a kind of like bullshit. It was totally bullshit. It was like, uh, I wanted to make this like really uh, kind of like brain dead uh, kind of uh, website. I could pretty much just like churn content on that I didn't care about at all. My strategy was like, I'll make it so ridiculous that I don't care at all. That way I'll be able to churn out volume, like posts in great volume and basically do the, do the, like the affiliate game slash maybe doing like products later or something. I just did it as a total test run. And, uh, it was so bad. It, and what I learned from that lesson was, um, it, you can't do something just to make money that is stupid because you won't want to put in the work. And, and that was like the big lesson there. Like, do you want to know the concept for this? This was like, when I was. this is when I was like, pretty much like, uh, moving away from kind of like the social justice warrior stuff that I was like actually pretty deep in. Um, and I started to kind of realize that like a lot of that culture is like pretty shitty. And I, and I was basically unwinding from all of that. But I realized I had all this kind of knowledge built up about like the social justice culture because I was like pretty much a social justice warrior for years. So I was like, I'm going to do a book review website. Uh, I'm going to do a book review website where I do like pro social justice warrior uh, book reviews. And because that because like that whole language and that whole subculture is so stupid and kind of like automated, I could pretty much just like churn out social justice gobbledygook reviewing books. And I had this I had this brilliant idea. It felt so brilliant to me because I was like, I know how all those people think and I can easily churn words out in the social justice lexicon. So I'll just churn out like blog posts (laughs) that I don't even care about and people will eat it up because. People will eat it up because there's like a ton of demand for, you know, there's lots of like social justice warriors on the, on the internet. That was like my business model. And so I was like going to turn this social justice idiocy against itself by like essentially churning it out at scale. Uh, it went absolutely nowhere because after doing like three of these blog posts, I was like, this, this is so stupid. I don't want to be, I don't want to be doing this. I frankly, I'm going to go out on a limb. I'm even going to tell people I'm probably going to regret this, but I think the website is still up and it's called librarycard.org. <laughs> <laughs> there are still like idiotic posts of, of me like uh, yeah so anyway um so this is to this is to inspire people because like yeah everyone has everyone who does this stuff long enough you're gonna have a graveyard of failed projects that go nowhere you know yeah and like, so it's so rare to talk about them because they are genuinely embarrassing right like i'm sure like yeah. i definitely like was internally like can i even bring this up and i guess the thing is like i'm now a level of like established or whatever you want to call it that i can talk about doing that kind of thing but say like maybe a year ago i don't know that i would be confident enough to admit to like i would admit in abstract that i have a bunch of failed projects but would i highlight a specific one i don't know uh, but so now painful. i feel like <laughs> yeah, it's so, it's like, so I do think that like that it's a, it's it's such an important learning process that like it doesn't go anywhere. It's like you fuck up, but the fucking up is useful because you learn something from it. Yeah, I'm looking at librarycard.org right now and I'm definitely taking this down immediately <laughs> after this call. <laughs> I love that there's still a mailing list pop-up. Also, join our mailing list, comrade. <laughs> this is so good, Justin. It's it's pretty funny. Maybe I'll leave it up for just a wee bit. But uh, yeah, I mean, I even had fake authors. I had like fake personas, like pseudonyms uh, that, I, that I was using in any event. Um, so, all right. So uh, what else? I feel like there's maybe just one more theme if you're not in a rush to go uh, that we've talked not- about before in which you're, uh, you're kind of known for a little bit. I know that you did a workshop not too long ago 
where you talked about uh, basically building social networks in a productive way. Uh, and, and so I'm kind of curious, you, I think you've been very good at building relationships through Twitter and, you know, you're very actively involved. Like uh, when you, when you recently uh, came into the indiethinkers.org community, you were just like putting out very positive, enthusiastic, useful stuff immediately, like m- more so than members who, who have been in there for, for some time now. So you definitely have a, a practice. You definitely have a style of enthusiastically uh, contributing uh, more so than other people. Uh, why do you do that? What's the logic behind that? And how, do, how does that work really? Um, I would say this is another thing where I just like have an intrinsic drive to like, for me, it's honestly very attention based. Like I like get having people pay attention to me and I'm just like driven to get attention. Um, and so I like, I figured out through trial and error, like what people like and I do it because I want people to like me. Like this sounds. No, that's really good. That's really transparent. Yeah. I like that. Um, and and like, it's not, it's not in, it's not inhuman really. Like it's just, I find it rewarding. So I do it. (laughs) Um, and it's, it's rewarding. It's both rewarding in terms of like the warm fuzzies and the relationships. And like, I just genuinely really like people. Um, I'm an introvert. So people exhaust me. But I do like I'm really curious about what makes people tick and what they're doing. And uh, I just I, I just like people. Um, but it, but it's paradoxical because it, it, the way you're describing it, it's very selfish. And I appreciate your transparency. But what you're actually doing is giving people help, giving people value, con- genuinely contributing. So there's this weird paradox, right, where like you can mm-hmm. be super selfish and you want attention and you want fame and you want money and you want to succeed. And actually, one of the best ways to do that is what, what this is what I'm taking from what you're saying is to actually just go super hard on giving people stuff and helping people and being present and yeah. contribute that kind of your logic. I, yeah. I'd say be, be assertive, be active. Uh, and then, so specifically for the, so I, I did this workshop, which was friends is force multiplier. Mm-hmm. And the basic concept of it uh, was like, here's how social climbing works. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's kind of like, I didn't, I didn't want to frame it like that. But I realized that if I don't frame it like that, people don't get it. <laughs> so that's what it is. It's like of the subset of people you like, pursue the ones who are advantageous for you to know. Um, so like this is again, like it's just kind of it's like it sounds sociopathic, but it fucking works. And like I do genuinely like those people. Um, so it's like, for example, you, um, you're someone who I just vibe with. Like we're just you know, like we just get along well, we have a lot of shared interests. Um, but we probably wouldn't be having this conversation if you didn't also have a podcast, right? Like if you had just hit me up and been like, Hey, do you want to do a zoom call? I probably would have been like, no, no, it's a waste of time. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Um, so I think it's just like, look for, it really comes back to this, like capped downside, unbounded upside. Like, if this, like, if this, if nothing happens from this podcast, I had a fun conversation for an hour. Uh, and that's kind of it. Like, that's not like, that's not even a cost. Like, <laughs> it's a right. small benefit. But the potential big benefit is that like, I don't know, like this goes viral or something. That's obviously not going to happen. But like, you know, whatever, whatever level of attention uh, you like this, this is friends as force multiplier happening right now. Like, I'm going to link to this podcast in my newsletter. People are going to click on it, listen to it. I'm going to promote it on Twitter. You're going to promote the, but like, it's just mutually beneficial. So I would say like pursue mutually beneficial social relationships and pursue is key. Like you have to actively reach out Uh, or maybe you don't have to, 
but it's like a hell of a lot faster. So. Right. And I think the real, the real key there, and I kind of, uh, I associate this with you is that you, for this to work, it, it does have to be pretty genuinely generous. Like you do have to pretty much just be going out of your way to constantly be trying to help people and being nice and being supportive. And I feel like, especially in my pockets of the internet, I'd like, we have definitely overlapping kind of social circles on the internet, but some non-overlapping also. And in some of the more kind of like political theory types of circles that I'm in, there is just like so much negativity and so much haterade, man. People are drinking that haterade like nonstop. And then I, I, interact with some people like you, Sonia, and, and and this is probably more common in the in the kind of rationalist wings and and certainly in the in any of the business and tech world, it's 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 it tends to be much more positive and constructive because those people understand it's all about positive sum games. Like you understand positive sum games. I understand positive sum games. A lot but a lot of people who are intellectuals on the internet are they don't they genuinely don't understand positive sum games and they think that they can just be these like negative bitter resentful people and also somehow be like an an impactful uh like thinker or something like that and in fact what people this is one of the biggest mistakes i see from from intellectual types on the internet is that they don't understand that like if you're going to have any impact with your ideas and you're and certainly if you're going to have any success building a kind of financially viable uh model for doing intellectual work over the long term you better find ways to to be constructive with other people. Like you don't have to like everyone. You certainly don't have to candy coat things and and applaud everyone and be this kind of saccharine, um, the saccharine nice guy. I'm not saying that whatsoever. I'm just saying ignore what you don't like and find what you do like and the people that you do like and be constructive and create positive sum games. It's like uh, for for some reason there's just so much bitterness and negativity and kind of judgmentalness and and kind of just a, a lot of kind of essentially zero sum thinking in the intellectual uh worlds that I'm sometimes exposed to especially on Twitter especially in the kind of political theory worlds and I'm just like uh people need to learn from people like you Sonia and and many other people who just like go on the internet and try to be helpful and constructive and supportive of of what they like and the people they like if you do that and this, I think, is the idea of the of friends as force multiplier. You will be blown away by how many opportunities start opening up, how much things start growing, and everything just feels like smoother and better and, and works for you and for the people that you're interested in. I definitely feel like at a certain point, like I, I don't have a, I, I'm not sure when the tipping point was, but there was some point where I realized, and this actually ties back into like being confident enough to quit my job, say, like both I have a I have a network, I guess. Like, you know, if I it's not that if I quit my job, I would go like or like if I had to find another job um, for whatever reason, I wouldn't I wouldn't like go to Craigslist and just like apply to a bunch of jobs. I would literally just like hit up everyone I know who has a company and be like, can I work for you? Um, that is uh, it's just like a whole different. It's it just yeah, it changes your landscape of opportunities. Um, and that is it. It's once, once I'm sure, I'm sure you felt it happen too, when it unlocked, like you're just, it's almost like you, you ascend to, or like you reach a certain threshold and then it's like you unlock a new credibility layer or something. And people are like, Oh, you're one of us. (laughs) Like, Oh, and the, uh, I, I go back and forth about the exclusionary aspect of this, but maybe that's like a whole another topic. I wanted to ask you, so do you think that, um, that like sort of zero sum attitude that you were talking about, is that a hangover from the structure or like the job market of academia? Or is it 
more of a cultural thing or? You know, I've really thought about that. And, and I think you're, I think you might have the nail on the head. That's something that I've also thought independently in my own thinking about this, because my model of it is intellectual life up until quite recently was often played out in these, uh, in these very particular traditional institutions, right? So academia being kind of one of the, one of the best emblems of it, but generally in ways that are kind of insulated from the open market, right? So whether it be academia or whether it be kind of traditional New York publishing houses or whatever the case might be for, for much of the history of ideas, the game is played through these kind of social hierarchies um, more so than open markets where, where actual intellectuals are themselves um, competing on open markets that that's very that, that's that's quite unprecedented that's that's really quite new and even today it's hardly a thing i'm i'm kind of uh you know one of one of a handful of people who i think You're are, are uh, yeah i'd like to think so I, I, but i'm a handful of many people who are, are who are kind of figuring this out um such as yourself also sonia but my theory of it is pretty much that because the history of kind of highbrow intellectual work has often been negotiated through essentially social politics. Like you have to convince some gatekeeper to like you. And then when you get their approval, then you get your book published at the big New York publishing house, or then you get into academia or whatever the case might be. And because of that history, we have a mental model of what it looks like to do serious intellectual work. And that mental model is essentially a zero sum game where you have to be superior to your competitors and you have to look down on other people and you have to be pretty much um, negative and judgmental about everyone who's not you. And uh, I think that I think what's happening is we have that mental model, which is based on years and years of of history of, of how the kind of intellectual economy has operated. And now all of a sudden, the the most important and creative and productive and I think in the in the long term impactful and successful intellectuals of our generation are going to be those who pretty much are learn how to unwind that because those institutions are dying. I mean they're they're literally dying if not if they're not dead already. And so those mental models and and the attitudes and ethos that that worked for those traditional institutions no longer work. And the one the people who are going to be the most successful intellectuals of my generation, I really do believe are going to be the ones who are able to adapt and essentially pivot their attitudes and practices to a more positive sum game, because ultimately now we are all kind of free floating enterprises, more or less on an open market. Yeah. And I think like you and I are not really competing with each other. Like we, not at we all. may have some overlap in customer, but uh, yeah, we're not like we're both in a literal sense, like not trying to do the exact same thing. But then also like if you, the, the more, like the more market share or whatever you want to call it, you like, th there just isn't like limited market share in the same way. There's the market no, th is so fucking huge. This of is, the internet, yes, so. yes, this is so good. I'm so glad you said this um, because I, I have a lot of strong views on this, which I've been thinking about for a long time. Like many people could look at you and I and say, in, in many ways, it looks like we would be competitors, right? We have a similar ethos. We have similar style. We're a similar age. We have overlapping social networks. And we're both making a go at a serious kind of long-term intellectual creative life uh, through crowdfunding, more or less. And so someone could say, you know, shouldn't we be anxious about, you know, uh, about uh, sharing audiences? Are we not competing for audiences? But I think this is one of the most uh, common mistakes that people have in their minds. And it is one of the reasons why people are defensive and anxious. Um, and it's so, so false. And I really do believe this because what people don't understand is that this world we're operating in, it's only just begun. Like it's, it's seriously 
much of the world is still not even on the internet and of the world that is on the internet don't even have like a reliable low friction like payment infrastructures right like, and then, like in china auto, for instance auto translation also if that's coming yeah, like we're exactly like there's so much there's so much that's not even fully saturated in terms of like basic technology and basic kind of uh, penetration of the stuff in society at large uh and and not to mention uh, kind of full-time intellectuals, like, like the types that we are, it's, it's kind of still unheard of. So pretty much like in some very superficial short-term sense, you and I are competitors, but we have so much more to gain by helping each other because the way I see it is like, if I can do anything, Sonia, to like increase, let's say if I can do anything to double your subscriber count over the next six months, what that really is going to do is it's going to show to many more people through word of mouth that what you're doing is even a thing, that there's even people like you doing what you're doing. And if so, if I can triple your subscribers, Sonia, what that's actually going to do is it's going to lead to thousands of new people who know that this is even a thing. And I only need five of those thousand to come to me because of your success for your success to be totally within my self-interest. Do you see what I'm saying? And I think that's like the longer term thing that almost no one sees, which is why I'm like talking about this with, with so much kind of excitement and enthusiasm, because I think when you realize that what people should realize is if you're doing any type of creative, like serious intellectual work on the internet and trying to make a go of it in an economically viable way, you should be throwing yourself at anyone else who's doing similar types of work, doing anything you possibly can to help them and make them succeed, because that's going to come back to you tenfold in the long term, because we're at the beginning of something new. I really do believe that. And that's why I'm just like so exasperated with all of the negativity and the zero sum thinking from like other, you know, intellectuals on the internet who fucking hate me, frankly, like people hate me so much. It's crazy. Um, like my, my book on Deleuze, my book on Deleuze was like, for a, for a small fringe philosophy book, it was amazingly successful. It was awesome. And a lot of my readers really liked it for what it's worth. But people who write about Deleuze or write about philosophy on the internet, generally, almost to a T, they all hate me. I mean, it's, it's amazing to me. Like, I have so much I could help them with. I have so much I could show them. And they could do what I'm doing uh, so much more easily if they were willing to like ask me questions like a friend asks questions about how to do things or ask me for support or whatever. But instead of doing that, they wallow in their sad little holes talking shit about me and they're going absolutely nowhere. And I'm just like, yes. I'm not, I'm, I'm not sad about it. I'm trying to help you right now. You're a fucking loser because all you do is talk shit. Whereas if you just try to be constructive and helpful, like I'm down to support you and I'm down to build something with you and let's all fucking do this. Let's fucking go. But people don't have that attitude yes, exactly. and they're losers for Rep it. Your friends. <laughs> What'd you say? People, yes, rep your friends is like, this is such a big, I, you're, everything you said, like, I just huge cosign to all of it. Like, it's so, it's like we're bootstrapping a scene or like I said earlier, like a village economy. Yeah. Like, we're just getting this started. Like, we're, we're building out Main Street right now, which is so cool. Like, I'm similarly so fucking stoked. Like, uh, this is, I, I do, I feel like we're on, I don't, I don't know if we're on the cusp or like a little bit past the cusp, but it's, um, I, f I feel like we're at the start of a new golden age, I guess. Uh, and part of like, but golden ages don't just manifest. Like you show up and you make it. That's how I feel. That's totally how I feel. I guess only time will tell if we're right, but that is, uh, that is clearly the wagers that both of you, both you and I are making. And, you know, we could be wrong. We could certainly be wrong, but, but we, we, we clearly, the game, though. <laughs> 
we have skin in the game. Yeah, we could be wrong, but we clearly do believe this because we've uh, both of us in our own individual ways, we've put pretty much all of our eggs in, in this basket. So um, we could be wrong, but we clearly do believe it because we're putting our money where I, our mouth is. I think that's powerful also is putting all your eggs in one basket. Like, there, I mean, there's an obvious downside, which is that like you could drop the basket and all the eggs break. But uh, there's also a sort of underrecognized upside, which is that basket becomes like the most important thing in your life. It's like all consuming. It's uh, like you're you're in love with the basket. You think every day about how to make the basket more beautiful and more safe and how to show it to more people so they can see all your like beautiful little eggs that are going to hatch. Like, uh, and that like that all in focus, all in incentive is very powerful. It's powerful for motivation. It's powerful for creativity. Like it's just, there's almost something a little magical about it. Um, yeah. Yeah. So definitely. I like, I'm really glad, <laughs> like I'm, I'm having the time of my life. Uh, although again, like, because I've had a day job, because I have like, you know, relatively wealthy family, that makes it easier. But other people can do it. Like, I don't think as far as I know, you didn't have like, I mean, you had a day job, but you were like a, a professor. You yeah, I was a professor for like six years. And I mean, I had the benefit of like, we had some savings from my academic job, but not a lot of savings. And uh, I mean, I come it's from like a not I come unattainable to the people listening to this for the most part is probably the point, right? Like, well, I don't know. No, I mean, I don't know. Like, I think, I mean, I come from a poor family and although I, yeah, I had a professional career and I had to, I had the opportunity to save somewhat for, for a few years. Um, I mean, it was, it, it's not that much and it's still, and it's still not that much. So, uh, and I'm, I'm getting kind of old. Like I think, how old are you? I'm 25. Yeah. So you're significantly younger than me as I thought you were. I'm, I'm 33. So, you know, I'm not getting any oh, yeah, younger. I don't have kids yet, calculus. but my wife and I want to have kids. So, I mean, my my situation when I took the plunge from academia, it was not particularly uh, promising or or privileged. Um, although in some ways, I acknowledge I, I did have some savings. Uh, my family, I, I get no money from my family. I, I never have. That and, so much. Yeah, that takes a lot of balls. You should be really proud of yourself. Well, thank you. I mean, uh, we'll see if it was smart or <laughs> or stupid, but. Uh, um, I mean, I look, ultimately, I think what this comes down to is like, there are different personality types. And as Sonia said before, like, if you, if you feel like you need to take a plunge and, and go all in on some sort of creative project, uh, if that means quitting your job, like you're going to know, like I, I knew, I just knew my time in academia was done. I was, I was over, I was over it. I was over it. And, and I think if you're a certain type Where? of person, um, but I came to with my day job was like, I am going to like my performance at this job is going to rapidly dive if I don't quit because I'm not motivated anymore. So yeah, that that and that goes back also to what you were saying about how going all in on something in some ways it can be unwise because, you know, generally having a diversified portfolio is better than having a non diversified portfolio. Um, so going all in on anything can be dangerous in that way. However, it does have some psychological benefits, which you alluded to before, Sonia, which is that if you are all in, you you need to focus and it will force you to focus. And um, I'm the type of person who like, I, I'm i an all or nothing kind of guy. I just always, I always am like, I, I'm either like really doing something or I'm not doing shit. And uh, so, so, for, so for me, it was kind of like, it, it needed to be an all or nothing thing. And I kind of knew that and I kind of felt that. And even though I took the plunge, probably before most people would consider it financially responsible. Um, I'm one year out and I don't regret it. I mean, I'm not like hugely super successful quite yet, although I haven't even done like a proper public financial report, which is coming up very, very soon. Um, I'm, I'm, Ooh, I've actually wait. almost replaced my academic salary a hundred percent. 
and, and only about a year. Congrats. So I'm, That's amazing. I'm, I'm pretty pleased. Yeah. I'm not quite there yet. Um, but the main difference is that now my upside is unlimited. So that's, what's so crazy and awesome is like in academia, you can only make so much money and you can only make so much, so much money so fast. It's like a pretty, it's a pretty set schedule of how your income increases. And yeah, if you're a professor for uh, 30 years, like you're going to, and you're, and especially if you're good and, and you publish competitively, um, you're, you're going to make a, a decent salary for sure. Uh, but it's limited and it's on a set time schedule. Whereas right now um, I have no idea, like to me, I have no idea what's going to happen. Like I could everything I'm doing could fail within the next year. And I could, I could literally be broke and have to kind of uh, put my tail between my legs and get some kind of bullshit job. Uh, but it could, there's a decent probability like above zero, like let's say 50% probability that I'm making way more than I would have been in academia had I stayed in academia. So uh, you can invest the surplus back into your venture, right? So you can get like this leveraged compounding cycle because you took that initial risk. Although I will say like you and I clearly have like, I, I think we both have this kind of all in uh thing is like a part of our personality. Yeah. And I do want to say, like, I do want to acknowledge that <clears throat> as you said before, there are plenty of people who have made it work by like sustaining their side project until it replaced like a third of their income or even sure. like until it was break even for their regular expenses. And that can work too. Like it's, I, oh, yeah. I feel like almost a lot of the stuff I say is it's both an expression of my worldview, but it's also an expression of my values. Right. Like, and it's very hard to, to extricate those things from each other. Um, so I, I always feel kind of guilty actually. Like I'll, I'll say that, like, I'll go hard on the risk aversion thing and be like, people are so passive. Um, but that is as much like, it's how I say things or it's how I see things, but it's also who I am. And so if you're somebody else, you're not going to like, I think that's something that I've really come to believe is pretty strongly is that you have to work with who you are and it's only malleable to a certain extent. Uh, and so like, if I were going to give people advice, my like very meta advice would be like, invest in your own strengths, I guess, like invest in your strengths, try to strengthen them more, like try to get that compounding advantages thing going with whatever advantages you have to start with. And they could be completely different from me or you. It could be just, it's like whatever you've got work on amplifying the good parts of it and then seek those opportunities where you can experiment and the failure is just kind of like embarrassing, but the potential upside even if it's a small potential upside, the potential upside should exceed the like maximum failure. That's kind of, that's the situation you want to find. Uh, And you want to make those bets over and over again. So you can find the ones that work or find the like experimentation, see what, see what works like and start small and then like gradually increase your scope. Hell yeah. I think those are all very wise words. And I think that's about as good a place to end as, as ever. And uh, we've kind of gone over time. So I hope I, I haven't ruined your day, Sonia. Oh, not at all. Good. Well, thank you so much for coming out. This was super interesting. And I think there's genuinely a lot of insight and tactical tactical and strategic wisdom in this talk, especially if people are interested in doing things like Sonia does, like making zines and uh, working an interesting kind of subscription model around that. Uh, Definitely check out Sonia. I'll put a link to all of Sonia's stuff in the show notes for sure. Uh, So you can check that out. And Sonia is very nice and approachable. So if you want to chat with her about anything, I'm sure she won't mind random DMs. And uh, yeah, I just want to thank Sonia for coming out.
Wait, wait, wait. First, before yeah, what we you actually got? close the podcast, I want to plug the Indie Thinkers community, which is it's oh. indiethinkers.org. I, you guys already probably know about this, but if I don't you plug it joined, too hard, to be honest, because I'm still building it. So I'm not oh, pushing it too hard at the moment. Oh, well, I think it's great. So. Oh, well, thank you so much. <laughs> thank um, you. Yeah, no, indiethinkers.org. Think yeah, um, if, check it out because it's the the community there is the rare sort of like if you go onto a subreddit that anyone can join, right? Like you're going to get the, the subreddit is going to be shaped by like whatever the topic is, of course, and it's going to be shaped by like whoever the moderators are. But to a certain extent, the community is going to be kind of random because anyone can sign up. But Justin's Indie Thinkers community, at least right now, is this, um, it's a very thoughtful group, I would say. And it's been interesting. One of the most fun parts for me has been seeing the wide array of things that people are thinking about and working on. Like there's a guy who's really deep on music theory. Uh, and that's like something I know very little about, but it's really interesting to see how he thinks and to see how he's pushing his own project forward and his own progress intellectually, as well as as a creator. And it's like you get this little window into the lives and the process of all these different people who are working on these cool, interesting intellectual topics that they're trying to unravel. Um, so that I would say is like a really great thing about indie thinkers. And that's my, that's my plug for it. <laughs> that's so cool. I'm so glad that you, uh, that, that you f- have been finding it cool and worthwhile. I, I'm, I'm working hard to build it. So I'm, I'm, my head is in the weeds of operations and trying to make it good. I literally have very little idea about whether or not people in, uh, like, like it or not. <laughs> so, so that's really nice to hear. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm proud of it so far. I think we have a real cool culture brewing. And, um, so thank you for mentioning that. And uh, yeah, if any of you out there are working on your own kind of long-term independent intellectual projects, I've, I've pretty much been trying to build features and systems in indiethinkers.org to pretty much be designed to support you and, and help you do that. So if you're curious, um, at the moment, it's just invitation only, it's, it's still in private beta, but you can request an invitation if you're curious at indiethinkers.org and I'll jump on a private video call with you and I'll just tell you about it. It's pretty much how the system works at the moment. So, uh, yeah, thanks for that plug. Uh, I I didn't realize that you weren't like actively, uh, (laughs) shilling that to the degree that I would be. So, (laughs) um, I mention it, it's no secret. So it's totally fine. I appreciate you. I appreciate you saying that, but it's more like, um, uh, it's still in private beta. So I'm, I'm basically, uh, Uh, I'm, I'm only mentioning it briefly here and there while I make it really good. I mean, I'm proud of it already so far, but I have, I have quite a bigger vision for it and I want to, make sure that it's really fucking good before I start telling people that it's here. You know what I mean? So um, I'm, I'm quite pleased with it so far, but I still have a lot of work to do before I really kind of launch it in public. Yeah. Well, I think anyone who's part of Justin's audience, you're already kind of making a small implicit bet on Justin and uh, I would increase your bet. That's, that's, that's my, um, it's my, financial advice question mark no that's that's just my advice generally like i'm a big believer in picking people um and then this is also incidentally like so much of my thinking is shaped by the vc world uh but how vcs think about it is like you pick the founders who get it and who have the drive and i think like justin does so well that's very kind that's so kind thank you very much i really appreciate that if it's like too flattering No, it's okay. Well, I don't edit, so I, I 
doesn't matter. <laughs> um, thank you also, Sonia, for not just coming out today, but being so forthcoming about your data and for sharing your experiences, good and bad. I think there's a ton of people out there. I think it's useful. People like us, we're not super successful. Like we don't have mad, we're not making mad money. We're like at the very beginning of just trying to make it work. So in a way it's like not, it's less impressive than all the crazy, like how I made a million dollar stories. But in some sense, it's more valuable, I think, because we're real. We're super real. We're not, we don't have huge followings. We're not famous. We're not rich. Uh, we're just barely making it work, but we're both fucking happy as hell. And it seems to be working. And so I think like, it's super useful for people to hear from you, the good and the bad. So just thank you for being so transparent. Yeah. Well, and I think it's probably like objectively, it probably sounds insane. The degree to which we believe our own hype, but like, <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> yeah. see what happens in a year. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Check back on us. We, we, we can't guarantee what, what will happen, but we believe in what we're doing and uh, we feel, we both feel pretty confident. So honestly, it'll be really fun to, to review this in a year and see where we're both at. Yeah. All right. Well, All right, thank Sonia. Thanks so much Justin. again. Take care. And for everyone out there listening, right. go ahead and uh, find Sonia on the internet and check out her stuff. Definitely. Yeah. All right. Sonia I'm, supposedly. <laughs> Sonia supposedly. <laughs> dot com is it? Yeah, There'll be a link com. in the show notes. So no worries. And Sonia with a Y. Ah, <laughs> uh, not with an I. Right. Cool. All right. Thanks again, uh, Sonia. I'll right. talk to you around for sure. See you all later. Bye. Later. All right, everybody. Thanks for coming out. Please do subscribe to the podcast, Other Life. You can find it wherever you got your podcasts. I'm going to be doing a bunch more of these talks with this more kind of practical, strategic focus, talking with other creative intellectuals and, and creators who are uh, trying to make a go of it uh, in an economically viable way online. I'll be talking with a wide variety of people. It's going to be all over the place. You can see a lineup actually at theotherlifenow.com slash events. I'm going to be talking with people ranging all the way from Anna Kachian of the Red Scare podcast to Eggy, the incel uh, celebrity who's a rapper and live streamer uh, who is uh, actually making a full-time living uh, by doing some very interesting internet stuff. Um, so it's going to be all over the place, but it's going to be fun. And I'm going to try to make these for the first time in my life. I'm, I'm shifting the podcast for a little bit to a really practical focus that's hopefully going to be actually valuable for other people like me who are trying to carve out some kind of weird intellectual niche on the internet in a economically viable way. So we're going to try to learn from people and, and learn what other people are doing. And uh, so yeah, this was the second in this series uh, after Ayla the other day. And uh, yeah, so far it feels good. I'm, I'm really into it. So I'm actually doing these, by the way, a little bit differently. I'm doing them primarily through Zoom meetings. So if you want to actually ask questions and hang out with us while we're doing these interviews, uh, you do have to register. Uh, a slightly different kind of system I'm trying out for this series. Uh, just go to theotherlifenow.com slash events, and you'll see all the upcoming events. And uh, you can register for whichever ones you feel like hanging out, hanging out in. But almost all of these will, uh, I'm sure, make their way to the to the public podcast feed. So if you're not in a rush to hear what we're talking about or you don't want to participate live, um, you should just subscribe to the Other Life podcast and you'll get them on your phone or whatever uh, at some point for sure. So I think that's all for today. I hope you enjoyed that. I certainly did. I think Sony is super cool and uh, I'm really excited by her project. I'm definitely going to be watching with interest. I'm really, really curious to see what she's able to do over the next uh, few months while she tries to make it work. So thanks everyone, as always, over and out. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. If you thought that was cool, then don't forget to subscribe and it would be even cooler if you left a review. I'd appreciate that. And yeah, just to learn more about what I'm up to, you can check out theotherlifenow.com. That's all. And I will see you around the internet.